0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast, particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. Hey everybody. So my guest for this episode of the show is Roman Reimer. Uh, Roman was introduced to me through Michael Fort, who was the guest on episode 102 of Detox City. Make sure you head on back and listen to that one. Uh, Roman is a writer, a performer, an activist, a radio host, an improviser, and an actor uh, from the Bay Area. Uh, hosts the weekly review on Mutiny Radio, so make sure you check that out. And uh, Roman is the show's first transmasculine guest, uh, as you might assume that uh, sort of colors uh, a lot of the conversation that he and I have. Uh, We talk about sort of discovery and the transition process and how it's affected his relationships with dating, uh, his relationships with his uh, relatives, his relationships with friends, uh, and, of course, his relationship with himself. Um, We also talk a lot about the fact that uh, this is an election year, Uh, not a presidential election year, obviously, but there are... uh, countless super important races happening across the U.S. right now. And uh, as I post this, Election Day is uh, just a short while away. So make sure that you head out to your local polling place or uh, if you haven't voted um, by mail yet, uh, go out and and make sure you vote. Um, And a lot of this conversation also just covers where politics, uh, you know, when politics is uh, an, an integral part of who you are, and I think for trans people, for queer people, for black people, it just uh, for any cultural minority it is just an intrinsic part of who you are, how do you A, sort of you uh, uh, bring your politics out and and try to be uh an educator and a safe space and also take care of yourself it, it it's and and advocate for others um it is a complicated question with no real answer but roman and i try to dig deep into that as well uh i enjoyed the hell out of this conversation i hope you do too so everybody check out roman reimer
1: my name is roman reimer i'm a human being on planet earth as far as i know learning new things every day we were introduced by a mutual friend, Michael, yes. and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to, to speak.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you're here and you provide perspective that has not yet been broached by a guest on this show, which is, for me, a little embarrassing because I've done 115 of these and every guest that I've had up until now has been a cisgendered male. Mm-hmm. So your perspective is very much needed and very much appreciated and very much welcomed. I am just angry at myself for not having had you on previously. (laughs) Although, to be fair, as I was saying before we went live, we have rescheduled this a bunch of Mm -hmm. times due to illness and scheduling issues and all that kind of stuff. And I do want to talk about how you approach masculinity. So I, yeah. I guess I just kind of want to start there and really discuss what your journey was like.
1: Sure. I appreciate the the opportunity. And also it's that thing where better to start somewhere and not yeah. to be too hard on oneself. And it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it. because I think the trans perspective is often not heard. And when it is, it's people like cis people's perceptions of us trans folks instead of us putting things into our own words so having the opportunity to to speak is is helpful and hopefully will be also helpful and informative to some listeners out there yeah absolutely. and and as far as a like journey goes like i mean it's constantly as i would hope most people every day is different i constantly am learning new things and that also has to do with Masculinely, or what one considers to be masculinity. And as a transmasculine person, there's so much to get into. And I already have a feeling as soon as this conversation is over, I'll be like, oh, I should have said this and this and that.
0: That's why we have part twos. so you can always come back and and finish your thoughts if if there's other stuff that that comes to mind
1: sure and I guess one piece I can just start off with is identifying more I guess overall like non-binary but still more on the masculine end of the spectrum I'm someone who believes that sexuality like gender is fluid and it can also change over time and how I might feel one day might be different than the next day and also I don't really believe in the strict binary that as far as growing up in the United States, a lot of that was kind of put onto us from a very young age. I mean, transphobia is very similar to to homophobia in that it's these very strict gender roles. And it's this idea of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And when I came out as gay, when I was in high school at the time, I was viewed as like a gay woman. And looking at it now from the perspective of someone who's a transmasculine, I guess I'm more like bisexual or pansexual. But this idea was, as a younger person, when I was in high school, I found women attractive, and being having a lot of angst about that because it was like, oh, okay, this must mean that I'm gay, therefore. And the idea now, looking at it, is like, oh, someone who identifies more on the male end of the spectrum. Here's someone who has was attracted to women, yet because of how I was perceived by others, it was somehow not okay. Right. If that makes sense.
0: It does make sense, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me in advance if I say anything that is ignorant, or please correct me. But assuming that we're about the same age, we did not grow up in environments or during a time in society when there was even discussion about gender as a non-binary construct. Yes, yes. So going through what you went through, what what was that like? What was it to be a, a child or a teenager and sitting in this truth that you were feeling incongruent with the gender that you were assigned at birth?
1: Yeah, so I was in high school in the mid to late 90s, and it was... There was this idea of, okay, there are gay and bi people out there, but I didn't really know so much about... I think I'd seen some representation of trans women over time, but of course it was not whew, by any means a an honest depiction or truthful depiction or told from trans people themselves. So as far as being transmasculine, I think the first I like recognition I had of someone who might be transmasculine was the movie Boys Don't Cry, which as mm. many trans men will say did more harm than good in that here is a story of a trans man who is played by a cis woman and based on a true story. And I I can provide, I guess, a, a trigger warning, but just has a very violent end to his life. Right. And this was the very first representation that I had seen. And if anything, it kind of put me back in the closet where it's like, oh, I love movies. I love TV. I grew up watching a, probably too much, to be honest. And there's definitely plenty of really problematic messages through a a whole other conversation we can have in terms of representation and also messaging and especially in the 1980s. Oh, goodness. However, to finally Mm -hmm. see that representation, here's somebody who is how I identify and this is what happens to him. It definitely made me want to step back in the closet a little bit. And this was years and years after not even thinking it was possible for me to be me or there was something wrong with me or I was trying to fix myself in a way.
0: Sure. Did you grow up in an environment that was, I don't even want to say permissive. Did you grow up in in an environment that was even acknowledging of the fact that gender was a non-binary construct? I imagine the answer is no, but I'm asking in case the answer is not no.
1: Sure. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is known to be progressive, and also a suburb of Chicago, which thought of itself as progressive and really wasn't. And my parents were, when I came out as gay in high school, they were okay with that, which I'm grateful for. Although that's kind of a low bar. Obviously you should love (laughs) your kid no matter who they are, but that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think at the time my parents had said that they had known gay people, so that wasn't anything new to them, but they really didn't know any any trans people that they knew of. So that was something different for them to kind of wrap their minds around. So yes and no.
0: Right. And I guess being... And this is, again, my ignorance of not having spent a ton of time in the Bay Area. And yes, I do realize the Bay Area is seen as a very permissive and welcoming place. But were there people to model the behavior at the time that you were sort of going through your realization?
1: Let's see, I was in the East Bay. I started, a friend and I started a GSA in our high school. So I think as far as the queerness, yes, there were other queer kids in the high school. And also not as far as trans identity went. Although, of course, I found out years later, of course I went to high school with other people who are also trans, but we didn't necessarily know at the time. At least I didn't know at the time. Right, right. And I think also I just didn't know the have the language to even know how to describe myself. Like I didn't ever feel like I was a gay woman, but that's what I, I'm like, well, I guess this is who you're telling me I am. I'm attracted to women, so I guess this is what I am. And again, it goes into this idea of we're – and by we, I mean the, the general we, a lot of folks who grew up in this country are taught, okay, or assumed to be cisgender and heterosexual. And then when one realizes they might not be, for instance, heterosexual, then it's like, oh, well then what else are you telling me that I am that I'm not? And for anything, it just really also helped me start questioning everything, which I think folks should do regardless. But it's also like from the very beginning, even before babies are born, parents assume, like, oh, this is based on their their genitals or what they think their genitals are going to be. They're like, oh, this is a girl or this is a boy. And how much pressure goes into that before babies are even born and get the chance to grow up and decide who they are. And so there's a lot to kind of fight back against.
0: It feels like there really needs to be a universal acknowledgement of the fact that genitalia and gender are not intertwined. I guess is the right way to say it. Which... I feel like there is like the majority of society still needs to get over that hump.
1: Yes, um, absolutely. And,
0: and uh, I, I can say this from my minority perspective, what it feels like to live in a world where your experience is invalidated often, but what does that feel like for you and how do you deal with it?
1: Oof. how do I deal? See, it's enraging, and I think that's true for, I think, most humans in one way or another, based whether it's on like race or ability. I mean, there are so many different ways in which we're treated differently based on our bodies, and there are certain expectations on us or assumptions made about us. And so I also just want to mention intersectionality, because, of course, there are so many different ways that people can be impacted by how people are not able, or we are able to speak for ourselves, but there's just the narrative since the founding of this country has been against honest individuality and people being who they are.
0: Right.
1: So I'm not quite happy with my answer there, so I might go back to that a little bit. There's so much there. A journal is helpful. Meditating is helpful. Like anything else, it's hard not to feel enraged. And also just with the uptick in homophobic and transphobic attacks, it's frightening and... Yeah, maybe I'll put a pin in that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard for a lot of people, which is not to discount anybody's individual experience. One thing I've been reading about lately and, and really trying to enact within myself is the idea of finding joy mm-hmm. and, and practicing joy. Again, even when your identity is under attack a lot of times, because that's the only way you're going to have any kind of balance. And, and I think there's some mental gymnastics required in that situation. But I also, like, I don't want to be a miserable person. (laughs) Yes. And I think the world, in a lot of cases, conspires or wants you to be miserable. There's so many things that are happening that will get you upset. Oh, Um, for sure. But you can't live your best life if you're angry or upset. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something I talk about in therapy a lot is, and my therapist reminds me, okay, well, action is something to one... That can kind of help someone get out of that so okay i'm upset about x y and z what actions can i take to either combat it or to just not wallow in the despair
0: right i am curious and again this might be your answer might be a little different living again in a very progressive area what has dating been like
1: I'll, first of all, just take, I mean, progressive. I think it's progressive maybe compared to other parts of the United States. I right. will I mean, San Francisco, especially. Ugh, I mean, it's gotten, it's, yeah. compared to.
0: Yeah, everything pardon. on a scale of relativity.
1: Yes, relativity, relativity. I'm grateful to be here, and also things could be a lot more equitable. I mean, I've been with my current partner now for almost five years, which is the longest relationship I've been in. Nice. And dating has been, I mean, at first it was kind of, It was exciting. And I don't know how much of that was because I was in my late 20s when I first transitioned. So there was like this new like, oh, I'm finally not necessarily happy with who I am, but more truthful about who I am. And the relief that comes with that of having to battle something for literally decades, because I've known for such a long time, this is how I identified, but I couldn't take the steps to do anything about it. So I think there was a lot of joy involved with that. But also, of course, fear of how people might respond. The idea of, oh, is someone just into me because... They're fetishizing who they think I am. There's that piece of it. But also just the excitement. And also I started dating more men after I transitioned, which is something I hadn't really done much of before because I started finding men attractive. So I'm like, oh, well, here's something else. And in terms of talking about masculinity, there was this whole thing of how, again, like previously, if I was out being viewed as a woman holding a man's hand, people would not think twice. Although my friends who knew me would be like, what is this person holding hands with a guy? What's up with that? (laughs) But... then all of a sudden to then be like, oh, now I'm seen as a gay man, which I always identified more as than a gay woman. But again, these labels that we kind of place on ourselves. So there's certainly just this idea of what's deemed acceptable and what's not.
0: Right. The moment when you decided that you wanted to transition or that you were completely firm in the idea that that is what you wanted to do, what was that? Was it like a bombshell? It wasn't kind of like... 100% light bulb moment, or was it more of like a gradual process?
1: It was very gradual, and I think it came across to a lot of other people as a bombshell, because I had some friends who were like, oh, I'm just surprised you actually decided to do it, because I'd kind of been hinting at it for such a long time. But I didn't know if it was possible, I think was part of it, and also just the fear involved with it. And... For me, it happened after an improv show. I used to do a lot of improv. And one of the pieces I love about improv was being able to play different characters. And I was just constantly, always playing male characters. And then I was finally in a show and I ended up playing like a woman or something. And I was like, that's it. I can't play a woman anymore. And and I finally had this kind of breakdown afterwards. and was like, I have to do this. And thankfully I had met someone who whose ex-boyfriend was a a trans man and she had offered to put us in touch. And he kind of opened me up to all these ideas as to what was possible. And then I was able to move forward.
0: I remembered from reading my notes that you sent over that you do have an improv and comedy background. Yes. Stepping into that for a moment. Yeah. One thing that I always find interesting when I talk to people who are artists is the audacity it takes to do art publicly, particularly improv, because improv, it's not like you're going on stage and singing a song that you've memorized for years and years on end. You are thinking on the tips of your toes every moment. And you're doing it in front of people. And I feel like as much as there's a part of me that wants to do that, that finds that really interesting and intriguing, I feel like in the moment I would shit my pants. Yeah. <laughs> so what is that like when you were growing up, did you always think that you wanted to do art or, or comedy or improv or theater or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I really loved writing. So any way to express myself and writing, I think felt very safe in that I was, I could just do it and then give it to someone. And I, I didn't feel the need to be, to speak up in a way. And then I, I did some theater when I was younger and I did a short form improv in high school and then continued on to do theater in college. And the arts just felt like a way to not be as constricted as maybe other areas of study might be, where there has to be a right answer, there has to be a certain way of doing something, and just allowing for creativity and self-expression, which I think as a young queer kid, there was always this feeling that there was something that I just kind of needed to say, but wasn't quite sure how to say it. And having a, a safer place to do that, I think theater helped Lend a place for that. And a lot of my colleagues were very accepting. Not all, but but many were.
0: Right. You kind of sort of just answered that question already. What do you think it is that draws queer people to the arts? Because I'm not off base here. There is a parallel for sure. Yes. What do you think it is that draws people who are queer to music or theater or writing or or anything that kind of involves that side of the brain?
1: I think the self-expression side of it, the lack of maybe conformity to it, where again, one doesn't—we've ha- spent our lives having to conform—and then here's an area where we don't have to conform, where we can just tell our truth in a variety of ways. And when we tell our truth, not in an artistic way, unfortunately, it's has historically—I just want to focus here on the United States here—like sure. been met with violence. I'm just thinking of also just with the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and how homophobia was so destructive and how if people are not allowed to be themselves, where people are going to find ways where they can be themselves. And I think arts is a way for folks to do that.
0: A lot of people that I know have issues with, I mean, I have issues with a lot of the things that we've discussed in just a short time that we've been speaking, but have issues with performing or being in front of crowds. And I was actually speaking to somebody earlier today who's a teacher, mm-hmm. and I was talking about some workshops that I have led, and he's like, oh, I could never do that. I can't perform in front of groups of adults. Do you ever get or have you ever gotten stage fright?
1: Oh, absolutely. And to be clear, I performed for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and that was after a very extended break. And that started even pre-pandemic where I was just no longer having fun. And I was no longer having fun with improv. And it was just getting so political that it wasn't really funny anymore, which was difficult to talk to audiences about. We're not really there for that. But I definitely have felt stage fright, but also sometimes the times when I've been the most anxious... I've then had the best results in the show because I care about it a lot. Yes, I want to be accepted, but I also want what I say to land in a way where I really connect with people. Like that's the reason that I have done it is just to connect with folks. And maybe that comes from being a very shy kid or feeling isolated or just even feeling alienated in this world where there are so many backwards messages and it's easy to feel like there's something wrong with us when really what's wrong is it's systemic. And the way around that is to connect with folks. And so theater for me was a way of trying to connect with people. So of course, there's some fear involved. And especially if I'm talking about something that I feel very vulnerable about, or people might take offense to, if it's like a political thing, then there is that fear of how people might respond. But I'd rather try to tell the truth than not.
0: Right. Again, I'm sort of circling this back to my own experience it took me a really long time, and it maybe it wasn't even until the last couple of years where I realized that in and of myself, I am political. If I walk mm-hmm. into a room, the first thing you see is the color of my skin, and that automatically makes me political. I, I, I can't avoid it. And I think to a similar extent as a trans person, when you walk into a room, politics immediately walks into the room with you. Yes. Uh, how do you take ownership of that?
1: That's a great question. Every person's situation is, is different, certainly. So, for me and for listeners out there, like I guess people would view me as masculine. People don't necessarily know I'm trans right away. Sure. So, that's part of it. I'm white. So, that goes into how people view me as well. And able bodied. Like, I think there's just so many different aspects of how I view myself and how other people view me. And, so for part of me I want to be as out as possible just because I recognize I do have certain safety that's afforded to me that's not afforded to other trans people so whether it's wearing like a political shirt or buttons or something I mean that seems very minor but at least it's a way of being as out as possible like for instance I purchased some socks which is seems so minor but I, I so. send you a photo of it of like yeah. the progressive pride flag so if I can wear like socks like that or a or trans pride socks or something, just something. So even if I'm like out in the world, there's something about me that just is open about who I am. So that's, that's a piece of it and wanting to just speak my mind, I guess, but every situation is different. So it's hard to gauge.
0: Right. So forgive me if I'm incorrect here. When you were presenting as a woman, you also dated men. Or, yeah, correct. What are the main differences between connecting with, and this isn't just in a dating context, mm-hmm. between connecting with men while you're presenting as a woman versus connecting with men being a man?
1: Well, I didn't really date too many men when I was, I was just kind of more like, oh, this is interesting. Let me just check this out to see what all the fuss is about, really. I was attracted to men growing up a little bit, like movie stars and stuff, but so much of that's just kind of forced on, I think people. Yeah, I just was more interested in, in queer men, I guess. So that's why I think and, and there's more of a connection after transitioning and being viewed as male right? for me.
0: And to be fair, queer men can certainly be problematic as hell also.
1: Oh, yes. For the listeners out there, I am nodding.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think there is an element of humanity that is like, oh, well, we're minorities. We're put upon Therefore, we cannot be as problematic as cis straight white people. And again, this is me talking here. You see that a lot in cisgendered white women. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, but, but, but feminism. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm like, y'all say one thing and then conform to patriarchal structure in, yes. in very obvious ways. So you're trying to play it both ways, but you can't have it both ways. Right. Queer men still are men. And I think there's an element of unlearning that has to be done and isn't always done, which lends itself to potentially being problematic in a lot of situations. And I'm not immune to that. I have been problematic in the past. I probably will be somewhat problematic in the future. Yeah, same here. And I think a lot of that,
1: also, I just keep on harping on this country for, I don't know, because I grew up here, right. but there's so much to unlearn. There's so many messages that we received either in school, through the media, through politicians, in our families, re- religion, even well-meaning. And sometimes that's where it comes from. It's like the well-meaning mm-hmm. that where we end up believing in this, just this taking part in oppression of one another. And also, it's like capitalism too, right? Where someone has to be below in order for someone else to be on top. And as long as that continues, we're going to continue to cause harm to one another.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Particularly as this is a a pretty loaded election year. How do we get past that? That's sort of an overarching question that I feel Mm -hmm. like has come up in every single one of these that I've done where it's like, okay, I know that you want to move forward. How do we get the people who are lagging behind to come with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the idea of working locally and having conversations one-on-one. It's like the the Black Panther slogan of each one, teach one. Each one, right? So, teach, yeah.
0: And this is another question that I've asked before that I've gotten differing answers to. How do we do the each one, teach one thing without causing undue stress and trauma to ourselves?
1: I think if that were easy to answer, we would have already done it. <laughs> I mean, it's also just the struggles have been going on for generations. They're going on since before we got here. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to undo. And it's, it's more than any of us can do on our own. It's why we have to do it collectively. And again, it's easier to talk about than to actually go out and do. And that's something I find with myself too, where I might intellectually be like, okay, this is what needs to happen. But then how can I actually follow through with my actions, especially feeling tired or scared and also with the pandemic? Yeah. How do we do it at this one step at a time and also just trying to be kind to ourselves and also by just showing up and being ourselves and telling the truth. I mean, there's a battle against truth-telling in this country. And so continuing to tell the truth, continuing to have conversations like this, and also just meeting people through friends, expanding our circles, that can be really helpful.
0: Community for sure. Now, you grew up in the Bay Area, right?
1: Mostly the Bay Area and then also a suburb of Chicago.
0: Okay, so, speaking of community, have you had the same friend base from when you were younger, kind of navigate itself to being older? Or have you had to sort of refresh?
1: Some refreshing. There are some friends from elementary school that I have reconnected with in later years, which is pretty awesome. And I lived in New York for about 10 years and had a lot of friends there. And so many of us have moved away. I think with social media, it's kind of helped people stay in touch a little bit. A lot bit. Easier. But I think In my 20s, I felt much more of a social circle, I think, based on improv and comedy and also being in my 20s and being able to party. And by party, I mean just drinking at a bar until it closes, which is not very healthy behavior, looking back on it. But being able to spend time with people and bond because I had that energy where I could stay up all night and go to work the next morning, which is not something I I could do now. Mm -hmm. I'm also in recovery now, so I'm no longer drinking. So that also means I opportunities to then perhaps bond with someone I no longer have in that in that way
0: this is another topic that has come up a lot recently and i feel like i'm getting signs this is definitely not just an american thing why do we rely so heavily on alcohol as a social lubricant
1: because it's widely available and it's marketed to us since we're very young and because they've been locking people up for cannabis and other substances which are natural since for in and like psychedelics and other substances that actually might help people in moderation, of course, I think, yeah, it's been so widely available and it's also a depressant and it's destructive. And not to say I haven't had some great times while drinking. And also it would have been helpful to have other substances or perhaps get to the root of the problem as to why I'm drinking so much. But I think it's been foisted upon us because the alcohol companies make money and they can lock people up for doing anything else.
0: Right. Do you think there's a psychological element to that where it's like, people want to come out of themselves and alcohol lowers inhibitions and puts people in situations where they're more in a space where they can deal with their, or where they are allowing themselves to project emotions that they wouldn't project sober.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I loved it. I was a pretty shy introverted person. I had a few drinks and I could just start talking to anybody. And that was a really nice feeling.
0: Right. Right. So circling back to the community part, how as a, a 30, 40 something, how do you build community?
1: (laughs) I I didn't want
0: to.
1: Oh no, no. Thank you. That's fine. 41.
0: Okay. How do you build community now? It is different than it was for most people in their twenties, because now you're dealing with people who have families, people who have kids, Mm -hmm. um, people who maybe do not want to be out until three o'clock in the morning at a bar. Uh, I'm raising my hand because that is definitely not my jam. But community is important for, I think, a lot of people, people who don't even realize it. How do you go about building community in your world?
1: It's been really tough, to be honest, especially with the pandemic, because my partner and I were both pretty cautious as far as as COVID goes. We really would not go to very many events. And if they were, they were outdoors. Even then... I wouldn't stay too long. So it's been really difficult the last few years. And I mean, it's a question that I'm still trying to figure out for myself. What do I feel comfortable with? What are risks that I'm willing to take in order to have a fulfilling social life?
0: Have you figured out any solutions or are you still kind of just trying to figure it out?
1: Still trying to figure it out. Like I did do a comedy show. There's a queer owned cafe nearby and the door was open and I was like, okay, I'm gonna perform again. And also I just had COVID. So I was like, I still wore a mask while I was sitting there and everything, but trying to risk assess to try to find, okay, what feels safe enough where I can show up and the benefits will then hopefully be worth it. And I'm so glad I went.
0: And you did this, this was impromptu. This wasn't like you have material written down and stashed in your phone or in your pocket or anything like that?
1: No. There are some pieces I've been wanting to share for a while, but I hadn't performed it in person. So...
0: That would make me so fucking nervous. (laughs) I would just walk out there and
1: probably start in
0: the Mm -hmm. middle of a thought.
1: (laughs) And that's okay. I mean, also, like, the place I performed, though, it was, like, a queer-centered space. All the performers were queer and or women. So it was also not, like... Because I've also done too many nights and days at Open to Anyone Comedy Nights, which are also happy 90% cis men, cis het men. And, yes, there are some fine comics there, but it's also there tends to be a more competitive mm. environment there. And it, it helps to be in a space that's more welcoming and accepting for sure.
0: It, it's comedy is an interesting place from, from what I know of it. And I'm not a comedian. I know people who are, and and my understanding of it is based on the experiences that I've gleaned from those people but like Phoebe Robinson has a podcast or she had a podcast. I'm not sure if she still does called So Many yeah. White Dudes. Oh. And it feels like the world of comedy is really just like cis straight white guys for the most part mm-hmm. in their 20s and 30s. And anytime there is a an ethnic minority comedian, particularly someone who is not black, like a, a Latinx or an Asian comic or a queer comic, or even I'm thinking about this guy Josh Blue who has cerebral palsy. Like it, you almost end up pigeonholed into okay, you you're the Asian comic. I forget what the the guy's name is that's on SNL now who happens to be gay and Asian.
1: Oh so Bowen Yang. Yang. Yeah,
0: Bowen Yang. So now it's like mm-hmm. oh yeah, great, you're the gay Asian comic. comic. Mm-hmm. And and how do you avoid being stuck in those? very specific pigeonholes as opposed to being someone who is funny first and mm-hmm. then whoever you are second or third.
1: Yeah. That's part of the reason I ended up kind of leaving comedy for the most part. It was just, it was okay for me to be in those spaces when I was younger and then eventually it was just not, no lo- no longer feeding me. And also yeah, it's like what feels safe, what feels comfortable. Is it worth it? Is it worth me having my five minutes? And there are plenty of comedians who would just go do their bit and leave, but I was like, oh, I'll hear what other people have to say. And then if you hear other people, especially if there's like anti-homeless jokes or misogynist jokes, I'm like, I don't want to fucking be around this. So much of that kind of attitude is like the opposite of what I try to, to share in the world. And I don't need to be in a space where I'm going to feel worse or going to have that that energy around.
0: Do you feel comfortable calling that out when it happens?
1: I wish I had been more so. And again, I haven't been in these spaces in a while. Yeah, I wish I'd been more outspoken about it.
0: Right, right. Circling back to your folks, um, Mm -hmm. they're fine with homosexuality. But now as a 41-year-old person, how is the comfort level when it comes to interacting with, with your blood relatives? Now that you are out as trans, mm-hmm. uh, how has that relationship changed? Mm-hmm. Has it changed?
1: Yeah. With my parents especially had a very rough few years or we weren't really talking very much and they really did not quite get it or understand and took it personally. And I'm grateful to say that we have been able to work on it a lot. And I think also me being back in the Bay Area has helped us have time to rekindle our connection. So I am feel very grateful for that. And as far as relatives go, I mean, that was the interesting thing when I first came out in 2008 was that I have some, I have a family member who is conservative and, or I would say more conservative than I, which maybe doesn't say a lot because I consider myself to be pretty far left, but I would imagine more conservative than I and and religious. And he got it right away. He started calling me Roman, starting using male pronouns. And I had a, a friend through improv who was more of like a wild child, very, did a lot of Drugs and stuff, and I mean that could be anyone, so I am not really naming names here. And this person had was like, "Why are you doing this?" I just really had a really rough time with why I would transition. So it definitely helped me rethink my own biases about people. And like, I think folks just put on their own expectations. People took it very personally, which I came to realize had nothing to do with me and more had to do with their vision of me and what they are maybe dealing with themselves.
0: Right. I was just about to ask, Do you, when people have a visceral reaction to things like this, my first impulse is to say that they're projecting. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I was going to ask if you felt the same, that maybe they're dealing with their feelings regarding their own, whether it's sexuality or gender in their head. Mm-hmm
1: oh yes, I can't tell you how many cis men had a lot of trouble with me transitioning because they found me, or they, they're they like, oh, but your breasts, they were just like, and I'm like, okay, so you like a body part of mine and that's somehow, you can't accept me. I can't also tell you how many men started hitting on me when I tri- And I'm like, oh, interesting.
0: It, it, uh, anyway,
1: it was just interesting. I
0: think there's so much to learn Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to how people react. Sexuality and gender are such big bumpy roads Mm -hmm. in America because primarily or foremost, I think people are unwilling to deal with their own fluidity
1: with regards
0: to sexuality and gender. And I don't know if that's an issue of being brought up with the idea that there are these binaries and, oh, am I a weirdo? Because I don't feel wholly one or the other. It's really hard for me to figure out why people are so confused. Confused isn't the right word. Are so... Now I'm trying to figure out what the right word I want to use is. Not uncommunicative, but have so many internal issues with their own gender and sexuality, which they then project outwards.
1: Yeah. Again, I'll go back to like media and politicians. And if there are all these messages, religion and families, just so many messages about it, you know, you have to be cis and het. And of course, if you are not one of those things, you might lash out at someone who is. And I think that's the thing that a lot of trans folks end up, people feel threatened because, we, we say, hey, you can be your authentic self. There are other ways to be in the world. And there are other ways, getting back to one of your original questions about masculinity, there are so many ways to be a man and I use man in quotation marks. Like there are so many ways to just be in the world. Right. And I think that's very threatening to some people who would rather follow a set of rules. Right. Because if there are other ways to be, then the options are endless. And that can be very scary to a lot of people.
0: There are people that like rigidity, right? There are yes. people that like binaries because that way you have, at least in your head, you have a definitive answer. Yes. There is there is an absolute yes and an absolute no. And realizing and recognizing the fact that there really are no absolute yeses or nos in life mm-hmm. is, is scary because yes. then, then you don't have an answer for shit. <laughs> right, right.
1: Yes, But there's also
0: a freedom in that, because then you're not like, okay, X happened because Y. You're like, (laughs) X could have happened because of Y. But there are also a million different ways why X could have happened, and I may not even be aware of all of the reasons that this may have happened, so I'm just going to let it go and say that it happened, and I don't know why.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So, I I think there's a beauty in that, and a freedom in accepting that, which I'm still trying to do, but... uh, I think once you get to that point, you become lighter, almost. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. I was just thinking, like, from my own experience, I spent so much time kind of fighting against my gender identity. And I think that's a big reason why I turned to alcohol and was, like, smoking pot every day. And it was because, oh, I can't deal with this thing that's right in front of me. So I'm going to try to numb myself or distract myself. And... Because of that, I wasn't present. And by not being present, that means I miss out on so many other pieces of life.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Do you find yourself these days in, whether consciously or unconsciously, in any kind of mentorship or example kind of uh, a role?
1: I would like to be, but I don't think I am, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, part of my job is working with medical students, and I do some cases where it's trans specific. So it's working with medical students to help them develop empathy and communication skills around treating trans patients. I don't think that's really mentorship, but it is teaching in a way. But I think part of it is we as queer folks, we lost a whole generation of people. And there are several, many elders I've met along the way who have helped me tremendously, whom I look up to. And also there is that absence, I think, which there should be so many more people around Mm -hmm. who would have, I think, helped foster us. And then there are also other younger queer and trans folks around, and I would like to be more, I think, engaged and involved. But again, it's the uh, putting into doing that I sometimes have difficulty with.
0: Sure. And and you make a really salient point about people who are, I guess, the generation right in front of us, or even the two generations in front of us Mm
1: -hmm.
0: who would have come of age in the 70s and early 80s. And particularly if they were in big cities, were just wiped out um, due to HIV and AIDS. And I I sort of was on the tail end of that generation. And the fear and the loss, and you got to not only think of the fact that, that lives were lost, that people passed away, but also that era drove so many people into the closet. yes where people ended up going into heteronormative relationships and and sort of convincing themselves that they, this was the way for them to stay out of harm's way. And mm-hmm. there there are very few queer, bi, trans role models in their 50s, 60s, 70s, because the combination of shame and death just mm-hmm. rendered 20 years, 25, 30 years of queer people just sort of like evaporated them or vaporized yes. them.
1: Yes. And I think also just the trauma of the survivors mm-hmm. and the people who spent lives having to bury friends every week yep. and just how having to carry that, what, it's, I mean, it's insurmountable. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you are a a gay or bisexual man, say you were born in... 19, if you're 10 years older than me, you were born in 1966, you would have been a young adult in the mid-80s, early 90s, when people were, particularly, again, San Francisco, New York, uh, mm-hmm. people were just dropping off the planet. And again, even mm-hmm. as someone who's on the younger side of that, I know half a dozen people who were unfortunately HIV and AIDS casualties. Um, mm-hmm. And it to to be on... in in that intimate level with death at a young age and also feeling like that was your destiny because of your yes because of something that you couldn't control like the psychological impact of that is tremendous
1: yes yeah Yeah, i just watched a show called it's a sin which is a british show and i highly recommend it it's like a five-part series and it talks about young people in london in the 80s dealing with the HIV and AIDS crisis and just the impact it had. And I've been having conversations with people about this recently and how there was like, I guess some time definitely there was art that was made at the time. And also some time needed to pass in order to revisit that, I think. And it's just for, for our generation to have witness to what people went through with the homophobia from the government and from families. It's just,
0: it's a lot. It is an incredible lot. What has been, and kind of, narrow pointing here putting a fine point what is the thing that's been most revelatory about masculinity for you as you've kind of gone through life
1: it's a joke (laughs) it's a fucking joke it's it's like this idea of having to be a certain way especially with toxic masculinity the things that some cis men told me like oh you can't cross your legs you can't cry you can't do the things that you cannot do and i'm like well tell me what i can Well, don't even tell me what I can do, but also it's just like this idea of it's it's like the Wizard of Oz. It's a person behind the curtain. It could be anything you want it to be. Right. Right. And so much
0: for a lot of people, but for a lot of people, the person behind that curtain is named Jesus. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned the crossing legs thing, because I remember that from when I was young. Like if you were a guy, you could like put your leg over the other leg, but you couldn't Mm -hmm. like have it like your leg pointing downwards crossing over the other leg because
1: they're you know, like, well, that's what women do.
0: Mm-hmm. In retrospect, it's fucking dumb. Like, it's so stupid.
1: Yes. And also just how misogynist it is. So much of like toxic masculinity is based on not being a woman as if women are somehow inferior to men. Right. And also just something else is how, seeing how differently I've been treated where it's like I can go out and not get catcalled, for instance. And it's a, a type of thing where well, obviously everyone deserves to live in safety and walk out of their homes like, and just the idea of how I would still have like the same soul, like in my body. My body looks a little bit different, but whatever's in my mind, whoever I am as an as a being, as an essence, that's the exact same piece. And to be treated so different just makes me be like, oh, this is all just so, so ridiculous.
0: It is super ridiculous. Final question: San Francisco is the most expensive city in the country to live in now. And it's coming from a place where it was like an epicenter of of outsider culture. Yes. How do you, like, balance being, mm-hmm. I guess, part of both sides of that culture? Because you live yes. there, but you're coming from a perspective that would have been completely welcome there 40 years ago, and you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a different space now. How do you stay connected to the original spirit of what San Francisco is
1: yeah. I mean, just trying every day, like whether it's being parts of organizations or, I mean, I did a radio show for about eight years. That was a very much like an anti-capitalist talking about current events and what's happening and inviting guests on. Nice. And I know I'm not doing enough personally. And again, it's also when you have such big moneyed interests, like trying to recall a progressive DA who's like the last DA we have is, okay, let's address the roots of crime. And like, let's, Instead of just arresting people, let's make sure that he was actually going after like corrupt cops and big corporations. Right. And so, like the big moneyed interests were against that. They don't want that. They just want to like arrest poor people and shoplifters and stuff like that. Right. So it's weird. Unfortunately, I don't feel like I have a good answer for your question because it's there's always going to. I don't want to say always, but like there's moneyed interests kind of going against people. And the wealth disparity here is huge. There are billionaires here and there are also thousands of people, including kids who are homeless. <sighs> Trying to hold both of those things of like, Oh, Hey, yes, I live here. And my partner and I have a below market rate place. Then also recognizing we're on stolen land as.
0: As we all many are. Of us are. here. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. So how can I hold these truths and also work to an equ- equitable world? Again, I'm kind of stuck with this. I can know something intellectually, but then how do I actually put that into practice? Right. And in San Francisco, it is very tricky. And part of me moved back because I want to live in a place where I can feel accepted and and get trans healthcare. And part of me just feels stubborn at this point, and also with a place where I can afford to live, it's like hard to let go of. Again, this is another question I I wish I had a better answer for. I wish I could say, oh, I do this, 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 and this. I organize with these people. I'm not doing enough to answer your question, honestly.
0: Sure, and I appreciate the honesty in that answer.
1: Something else I'll bring up, which I'm sure other folks have also brought up, is just how terrible it is for everyone to have limitations on toxic masculinity is terrible for cis men as well. Just the limitations as to how people can be. And also just the, the funding for cops and military, because it's all connected, right? It's this idea of punishment instead of actually rehabilitation and helping people. And I think that's very much in line with that. (sighs)
0: Yeah, absolutely. It all originates from somewhere. And I think getting to the root of the problem or even understanding the root of the problem is something that is still so difficult for many people. And we need to figure out We collectively, we have to figure out how to get other people, not to get other people there, because I don't know that any of us is quote unquote there, um, Mm -hmm. but how to get people on the road to getting there or to join us on the road to getting there. I want to say that in a way that doesn't, that doesn't imply ego of like, well, I'm on this journey and you're not. But also I want to acknowledge the fact that I'm on a journey and a lot of people ain't on that journey yet. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: So. I think it's part of it's like meeting people where they're at, which is something that can be very, I know it's very hard for me where it's just like, oh, why can't you see this? Right. And then it's reminding myself, okay, I can have conversations with people through storytelling, sharing personal experiences. Yeah. That can be helpful. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think there's a way to determine whether people are willing to start on that road or go move on that road with you. Whereas I think there's also... Conversely, people who just ain't interested in that road at all. And I think mm-hmm. those people, you just got to be like, well, you'll get there in your time. But for now, I'm not going to fuck with you um, mm-hmm. and try to concentrate on people who are actually interested in in growing.
1: Yes. That just reminds me of a quick question. is or, So I'm like Ashkenazi and I'm Jewish and I'm also an anti-Zionist. And so I was talking with someone else who was also doing some organizing around that. I'm like, how do we go about talking with other Jewish folks? And this person suggested, well, there are the people who might be halfway there, or people who might be open to expanding their mind around this particular issue. Right. And so that sounds exactly like what you're saying, is there are folks who are perhaps open to that and working along those lines.
0: Yeah. And as I- opposed to the people
1: who have totally made up their mind and refused to budge at all.
0: Right. Not that I don't think there's hope for people who right now are not budging, but I think that takes a level of work that would drain us. Yes. So you got to leave that to the people who maybe have a a little bit more spoons to handle that.
1: (laughs) Yes, for sure.
0: Thank you again, Roman, for appearing on the show and being so honest. I think uh, part of being a human... Uh, and part of being sort of an evolving human is recognizing when you don't think you've done enough, even though I I guess that is a subjective matter, and also kind of knowing when you don't have the answer to certain questions. Uh, I think just as humans, we like to think that uh, we are definitive about a lot of things, but the reality is a lot of things don't have definitive answers to begin with, so how can you be definitive about something that there is no definitive answer uh, to? Anyway, uh, Roman, I really, really appreciate you uh, being as vulnerable and honest as you were on the show. Uh, If you are interested, please follow Roman on Twitter. And I literally just lost. I believe Roman Reimer's Twitter is actually Roman Reimer. Uh, R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll come back and have another conversation at some point. Everybody, make sure you get out there and vote. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Guy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, Uh, rate, comment help a brother out uh help us move up in the rankings uh follow me on social media like i said uh, follow our patreon or subscribe to my patreon actually patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.